Welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. I'm Kerry Smith-Danes, I'm the clinical multimedia editor for Optometry Today. Uh, I'm also an independent prescriber in um, practice in Lancashire. Uh, with me today is... Ian Beasley, and I'm Head of Education for the AOP and Clinical Editor of, of Optometry Today. I'm also a visiting lecturer and researcher at Aston University. So, um, Kerry, it's hard to believe we're here for our second ep- episode of the OT podcast already. That's right. For those of you that missed the first episode with um, Professor Nicola Logan, then that is available to listen to on our website, Optometry Today website, but also via the usual podcast provider apps. In that first episode, we were looking at myopia management and, and the evidence behind myopia. We've got a new topic to explore this time around, which is really looking at um, Optometrist 2.0. So what's the future of optometry looking like for those that are qualifying in, in, in today's era? And if, if I cast my mind back, Kerry, to when I first qualified, which was literally in the last century, just thinking about my consulting room as a pre-reg, at my disposal I had a Gerum screen. Nice. I didn't have a Volt lens. I certainly didn't have a Fundus camera, nor did we have the internet. In our premium consulting room, we had a Friedman visual screener mm-hmm. where you had to draw on where somebody had missed a point on the visual field test. It all sounds quite archaic. Now, you're not as old as me, of course, Kerry, but what was it like for you when you started out? I started out, um, you know, it was, it was all ophthalmoscopy, really. And I switched out of ophthalmoscopy to Volk fairly early on just because I was an amblyope and it was, I was getting ridiculous backache trying to and neck ache trying to lean sideways to, to examine people's eyes all day. But uh, yeah, we'd, I mean, we didn't have, I don't think there were as many options for upgrading yourself in those days. And actually thinking about it, CET as it was called then, which is now called CPD, it wasn't compulsory. So you'd, you'd, you'd go along to a lecture because you were interested in something, but you didn't really think about your scope of practice and how it aligned to it and um, upgrading your qualification. You were kind of qualified or you weren't really. And now there's a, a plethora of qualifications you can do after becoming an optometrist in the first place. And we've both had, you know, had a crack at uh, improving ourselves over the years. If we think about that definition of the leap from optometrist 1.0 to 2.0, I'd say our guest today um, certainly fills the category of, of the latter. So I'm delighted to, to welcome Ian Cameron. And just just before we, we sort of settle down and have a, have a chat, Ian, I just thought I'd do a a formal introduction, if that's okay. So Ian is Managing Director of Cameron Optometry, a large contact lens and therapeutics specialist practice in Edinburgh. Ian is an enthusiastic, independent prescriber and lectures widely on all aspects of eye care from business to retinal pathology. So welcome, Ian. Ah, oh, thanks very much. And in fact, it's nice because like when you, t- you two are discussing feeling old, you're making me feel young because I actually went to uni in 2000 and qualified in 2004. So that's all this century. So uh, that's great. I feel like the baby of the group, which is quite nice. Well, you did follow in my footsteps that you missed together. So. Uh, that's right. You missed uh, as was. Yeah, not anymore. We're so old, our university doesn't even exist anymore. That's that's how old we are, Kerry. So thinking about where you are now, Ian, in your practice, take us right back to the, the beginning. So how did you start out and what's that journey been like? My father is an optometrist. My grandfather was a dispensing optician before him. I can remember having a conversation with my dad. I don't know how old I'd be, maybe 12 or something like that. 
And I said to my dad, you know, you enjoy what you do, don't you, dad? And he was like, mm, yeah, I do, yeah, I really enjoy it. And I said, oh, that's good. And I said, well, you know, you earn a decent amount of money, don't you? And he said, yeah, yeah, we have a pretty good lifestyle. And I said, well, I, th I think, well, I'll think I'll just do that then. Uh, and, and then that was it. And I never really entertained any other career path, even probably remotely after that. So, and I would be, I would be 12 or something like that. So that just set me on the path to choosing what subjects I would study at school. I studied the sciences thinking, well, I'm going to go and do optometry, so I better do the sciences. And I only applied for optometry, didn't think about doing anything else. Um, and, and just kind of dived into that with both feet and went to, went to UMIST as was in 2000, qualified there and did my pre-reg 2003-2004 in Manchester Royal Eye Hospital and uh, worked, continued after my pre-reg there to work in the eye hospital but did some work back at UMIST as well in contact lens research. So there's a research unit in UMIST called Eurolens doing contact lens research. Um, yeah, what else was I doing at that stage? That's when I was doing some, I'd also taught in the clinics, the, the undergraduate clinics, so I quite enjoyed that teaching element. Uh, and so I quite liked the variety. So I did a couple of days at, at uh, the high hospital, a couple of days in research, a bit of um, undergraduate refraction. So I had this sort of variegated uh, career, which was great fun back in those days. I was learning loads and having a great time. Um, and then had always planned to come back to the family business and... Um, I married uh, a lovely girl down in Manchester, uh, but unfortunately she passed away very soon after we were married down in Manchester. So um, that sort of change in life kind of forced the issue, I think. And I thought, well, you know, I was going to go back to Edinburgh and maybe this is the time to, to go back. I had sort of planned to maybe stay on and do a PhD and, and do some more research because I was quite enjoying the contact lens research. But I'd always planned to move back to independent practice and that sort of forced the issue. So uh, back I came, uh, that was the end of 2005. I came back to Edinburgh and started, joined in the family business here, um, Cameron Optometry is in Edinburgh and have been working there ever since. That's, that's me, really. And at that time, were you still working alongside dad in the practice? Yeah, so my dad was there for, um, dad was there for a while. Uh, my mum also worked in the practice and my sister rented office space, had a job, nothing to do with optometry, but just happened, we had a spare room. And so she happened to rent that as her office space. So all four of the family were working in the same building. So it was pretty hardcore, but we always got on well. It was never, never much of an issue. And in fact, at that time when I'd moved back, um, I was renovating, I bought a flat and was renovating it and that took like nine months. So I was living back with my mum and dad and we were all working together in the same room. So it was, it was this sort of super intense family period, but maybe that was that was a good thing given what I was going through in my personal life at that time. So um, yeah, so that worked well. And then latterly, um, my dad had always planned to sort of step back gently. My mum unfortunately got ill. Um, she'd had cancer uh, a long time ago when I was young cancer came back and so my dad said look I really need to just get out of the practice and and be with your mum and so he took a step back from the practice oh that'd be 2011 I can't quite get my date something like that so I'd been in the practice a few years by that stage um, but we'd planned this sort of careful transition where I would start to take on things about the business and learn how to run the business because by that stage it was quite a big enterprise and obviously at optometry school, you get virtually no training in business whatsoever. So expected to run this big 
business with no qualification in that at all. Uh, but in fact, my dad just basically had to leave uh, and left the business and it was a sink or swim for a while. Uh, and I very nearly sank for quite a while. So I was really, it was hard graft those first few years. I was working really, really hard, a lot of hours, trying to do the clinical stuff, trying to develop my, my own career, trying to learn how to run a business, look after staff, develop the business, start new services. It was just full on all the time. So um, up until then, I guess I had, I had sort of lived the optometry high life, right? From sort of 2005 to 2010, I was living the dream. So uh, because I, I didn't have, I didn't have any, I didn't really have any sort of responsibility in terms of ma making the business make any money or like looking after staff. But, I, you know, I had, I had, I got to work in this fantastic practice with a huge range of patients, opened me up to a load of stuff that I wouldn't have seen elsewhere, um, did some qualifications, so did my IP as soon as that was available in 2009-10 is when I did my IP. Um, I did my diploma in contact lens practice um, as well. Uh, did as much lecturing as anybody would have me. So if some folk wanted me to talk about stuff, so I would I was flying around all over the place doing lectures wherever I could, involved in research here and there, going to conferences everywhere. So it was absolutely brilliant. It was like an optometry dream. Uh, and then uh, back to back to earth with a crash when the responsibility of of actually looking after a staff team and developing a business landed on my shoulders. But it was a great phase for career development. So I came on an awful long way from 2005 to 2012. I just absolutely motored through stuff, learned so much, took on so much, did so many things, clinics and hospitals, all sorts of things. So really kind of condensed um, period of learning for me and, and probably never never learned so much in such a short space of time again actually but it was a great time. Maybe you can give us some insight into how how it is now I mean you, you had those uh, halcyon days and now you, you've actually all the responsibility is on your shoulders and you've got to work out the balance between working on the business and working in the business and managing stuff and how, how are you coping with that now? It's always a learning point and you're always adjusting adjusting the balance. I think someone described it like burners on a gas fire where you can kind of turn one or on a gas cooker and you can turn one up but you can't have like all four or five burning at maximum all the time or it's just you're just too much and so you have to kind of keep them all in uh, burning optimally and I suppose it's a bit like that so sometimes your personal life's busy and, and maybe you have to just kind of cool it a bit in terms of what you're taking on in the business um, sometimes the business is really busy, so I have to just kind of my other interests have to come uh, calm down a bit. Sometimes I need to develop myself clinically, and so I need to just the business kind of takes a bit of a rest. You can't push all these things forward with maximum effectiveness all at the same time. So if I want to develop my my personal optometry abilities, kind of what's happening in the business takes a bit of a back seat. I can also be starting new services very effectively or transforming the way I do things in the business if I'm doing a, a qualification in glaucoma or whatever. Um, and then vice versa, if I'm really pushing things forward in the business, then inevitably my, my sort of clinical interests take a bit more of a back seat for a couple of years while I push that thing forward. So it's constantly just doing a bit of this one, pushing that a bit forward, moving that a bit forward, moving that a bit forward, rather than pushing all things all the time. I think that's a recipe for burnout, um, which I, I, I definitely want to avoid. So I'm pretty careful about managing my time and I, I'm i pretty good at saying no to stuff. So people ask me to do things and I just say no. Um, and I don't feel bad about that. I'm just saying I don't have time for that, even if it's interesting. There might have been a time when I used to do that, like 
now I guess I'm doing less like lecturing. I'm away from the I'm away from the business less now, um, and away from family less than I was back in the early days. Um, just different responsibilities, and I guess like all things, there's a there's a time for a time for this and a time for that. So there was a time for me really pushing my career forward, and then there was a time for me really pushing the business forward. Uh, uh, and you just you move through these different phases, and and I don't, you know, I look back on those kind of halcyon days as you describe them, Kerry, and I do enjoy them, but I don't think I want to do that again. Like I don't think, oh, I wish I just had no responsibilities and I could just do my clinical stuff again. Like I feel like I've done that, and that was good, and it was the right thing at the right time. But now I love what I'm doing now. I love I love looking after the staff team. I love bringing on new members of staff, and you know we're six IP optometrists or five IP optometrists plus me. Uh, the fifth is in training at the moment, but um, you know, so we're all IP optoms. There's six of us in the team. It's a great team to be a part of, and we learn so much from each other. And it's I love developing those guys and putting them in an environment where they can develop. So, you know, the development that can take place in in this practice is it's, it's kind of by virtue of the practice. It's it's the the the, the the type of patients that we see, the contract that we have with the hospital, the reputation that we have, and the long-standing sort of reputation that my dad built over many years, makes the practice environment quite unique, uh, and that is a great learning opportunity. So actually, the most I learn is by just being in practice every day and seeing the range of stuff that we have here, which is very unusual, uh, and that then is great for new optometrists coming in. Like when when I'm taking on new optometrists, I'm always saying to them, "Look, if you want like." an easy life, this isn't the practice to come to. But if you want to learn stuff that you've never seen anywhere else and get opportunities that you will not have other places and learn skills that you will just not have the opportunity to learn anywhere else, then this is the place for you. If you want to be at the edge of your comfort zone all the time because you're seeing stuff that you just don't really know what you're doing with, then come aboard and you're going to absolutely love it. And it's great. So like every day in practice is a stretch. Um, and that's good, and that's uh, I suppose what keeps it interesting for me. And I, 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 it's always like that. And that's that's the environment that we're in. And so bringing other people into that environment is really fun because I can I, I see people now and I think you'd be great, you'd be a great optometrist if you were just put in the right environment. And there's so many there's so many good optometrists out there. They just need to be exposed to the right stimulus to provoke the growth that they need. And and I find that very. Um, engaging and fulfilling now to, to find other people and think, I could I could help you be an amazing optometrist just by putting you in this environment and exposing you to the stuff that I was exposed to at a young age. And uh, yeah, and, and so that, that really stimulates me now. So actually I quite enjoy that aspect of practice more so than maybe my own personal growth as it was, but uh, I still find time for that when I can. What is it that still. you look for in those recruits? What, what, do, you, what do you aspire in that person? Oh, that's, that's, the, that's the question. Yeah, what is it? What, I, I, do you know what? I don't know. I think the, the best description I can have of it is um, someone who wants to be at the edge of their comfort zone. I think that, that's what I said earlier, and I think that's what it is. So it's somebody who, rather than, like if I put you in a position where you don't know what you're doing, Either you hate that and you shut down and you're like, I, I just, I can't do this, don't make me do this, I hate that. Or you think, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but I really want to give it a go. I'd love to have a chance to try it. If you've got that attitude, that's what I want. I don't care if you don't know how to fit a contact lens or remove a foreign body, or I don't even care if you know how to do a Vogue lens or not. I can teach you skills. I can teach you techniques and, and put you in this environment. Like if you've never done specialist contact lenses before, then you know, 
come and spend six months in our practice and you'll be an expert in specialist contact lenses because there's so much coming through. But you need to have the attitude that's like, I want to give it a shot and be and be kind of at the edge of where I'm comfortable and, and be not sure about what I'm doing, but give it a go and be confident about giving it a go. And so when I see that in people, I think that's the attitude I'm looking for. Uh, and if I think somebody's got that, then that's the kind of person I'm looking for and, and then put them in this environment and psh, takes care of itself. And you obviously see a, a really broad range of, of, of patients. Is there one particular clinic, clinical area that really excites you or is it just the, the variety it's, itself that you, you enjoy the most? Yeah, I think it is the variety, actually. I remember having a chat with a guy who's a, a patient came in, he was a, uh, a, like a, a high-flying neurosurgeon. Uh, I was like, oh, that must be amazing. Like, you know, chopping someone's head open, like poking about in the brain. I was like, that must be incredible. And he was like, yeah. He says, you know, once you've tied your thousandth aneurysm in the brain, it kind of gets quite boring. And I, I, that was quite early on in my career. I remember him saying that, thinking, man, how can you ever get bored of prodding somebody's brain, like with their skull off, like sawing open their skull, prodding the brain. How does that ever get boring? And this was this guy saying, it does get boring. And I think that led me to realize that anything will get boring if you do it often enough. Even the most rock and roll thing you can imagine, like the coolest thing ever. And you know when you start in optometry, like the coolest thing ever is removing a foreign body from someone's cornea, right? You're like, that's the most exciting thing I can imagine. Like once you've done a thousand of them, pfft, it's not that interesting. And, you know, fitting keratoconics, wow, it sounds like it'll be fantastic and the most exciting thing ever. But I tell you what, it gets boring eventually if that's all you do. So I think I learned that lesson pretty quickly that actually variety is the key. And so I'm always trying to find ways of making the the service that we're providing here as varied and as wide as possible just for my own interest. Like I wanna see the biggest range of stuff possible because that's what keeps it fun. I'll get bored of doing routine refractions all the time, just like we all do, but some routine refractions are fun and I'll get bored of doing just red eyes all the time, but some red eyes are fun. And you know, it, and so, so that's kind of our approach. I think it is variety. And actually I don't really think it matters too much what I'm doing as long as I'm not doing the same thing all the time. And, and you mentioned the, um, the, the, the contract that you have with a hospital. Is that, is that something that's fairly unique to your, to your practice? I think it is for us, for the size of it, I think it's quite unique in that um, most cities the size of Edinburgh are with the same number of patients. We probably have a, a, an optometry unit inside their eye hospital, which would do the contact lens fitting, like Glasgow or Manchester, where I used to work. Slightly unusually, um, Edinburgh doesn't have that facility in its eye hospital, and so that the contact lens fitting for all the complex contact lenses is handled in community uh, by a couple of practices. We're the majority of it because we're big. Um, and we've been doing that for like mm, 25, 30 years. We've run that contract. It started off very informally back in my dad's day when the surgeons would be like, oh, can you fit this person with a lens? And it was all sort of hand in glove type stuff. But now there's a proper sort of tendered contract that we have to apply for and adhere to and all this kind of stuff. But still, it's a, it's a, it's a huge volume of patients with complex anterior segment disease of various descriptions that need contact lens fitting. Um, and that would usually be happening inside a hospital or to a smaller extent in more rural settings. Usually, you know, you get sort of community contact lens schemes. 
uh, but this is quite unusual that it's very condensed but in a big city um, so I think that's quite unusual I don't know maybe there are other big cities that have that sort of thing but I get the feeling that's more unusual so we have a, a huge volume of our work is that sort of work and that exposes us to a huge amount of anterior segment disease a lot of the reason I know so much or know what I know about anterior segment disease which I feel is quite good is from that contract because we see so many patients with anterior segment disease that just don't come to community optometry otherwise so um, that gives us a lot of experience in IP and that's you know why we wanted to pursue IP because we just had so much anterior segment stuff happening. Is that financially viable for the practice as well having this this sort of work because I think certainly within England a lot of the challenges are taking on those um, more exciting clinical aspects but, but getting it to pay at the same time is is always a bit of a challenge. I think the volume that we can do now is probably, it, it's gradually started, it started small, it's got a lot bigger, and because we do quite a lot of volume, I think it, it is a profitable thing for us. I don't think it's as profitable as some of our aspects, you know, there are other things we do that are more profitable, but it is so good for the practice in lots of different ways. Like it's so good for the optometrist. They love the work. It's interesting. It brings them variety. It exposes them to stuff like a degree of learning that you just can't buy unless you were going to spend days and months and years working in a hospital clinic. So I can get them kind of hospital clinic experience, but in the practice. Um, it gives us great links with the eye hospital. We're very close with the eye hospital and the surgeons and the docs up there and the nurses and all the rest of it. So we've got great links with the eye hospital, which is good for the practice. So I think it has a lot of ancillary benefits, which when, when taken as a whole with the volume of the size of the thing, um, makes it profitable. And it's a, it's a great sort of referrer as well. You know, people with complex needs refer other people with complex needs and um, yeah you know that generates a lot of new patients and gives us a reputation for being the place to go if you've got problems this is the place you come which is not always ideal if people only seek you out when you've got issues but they're the stuff they're the things we love to deal with and we're good at dealing with them so it doesn't phase us um, and then we've sort of built the business on that model and so it plays into that model quite nicely so I, I think it, it can work um, but I think it can easily consume your practice as well. If you're a smallish practice and all you do is that sort of work, it's gonna, it's not going to be enough. So you've got to keep it in proportion. Yeah, I agree with you. The sort of patient accessibility was so much easier sure. to ring up and say, "Hey, I've got a problem. Can I see? Can I see Ian today, please?" You know, it's so much easier for the patient. Thinking about um, optometry more generally in, in in Scotland since the sort of the big change to the the contract that happened some years back now. How, how do you think that's that's worked out? Oh, I think fantastically well, yeah, yeah, fantastically well. So it's 2006, the, the new sort of regulation started and they've incrementally changed since then, but it has put Scotland on a trajectory that is extremely positive in, in almost every way. So the general level of optometry is higher in Scotland. So you can kind of go almost anywhere in Scotland and get a pretty good eye exam because uh, most, you know, everybody's got to be dilating you if you're over 60. Everybody's got to be capable of doing contact tonometry. Everybody's got to be able to do Volk. Everybody's got to have a fundus camera. Those kind of basic level pillars of good optometry are required in every single practice in Scotland, no matter who you see. That means I can quite confidently say to anybody, you could walk into any Scottish optometry practice and probably get a pretty reasonably good eye exam. Obviously, come to my practice, it's going to be better. But any any practice is going to give you a reasonable standard of eye care. And that's that's what we want. We want, we want it to be 
at, at the base level to be a good level, and I think we've we've achieved that. So that's that's a huge positive, uh, huge positive because of the contract. And then I suppose the other thing is the, the kind of professional development. It has led to, I mean, I think what are we twenty five, maybe thirty percent of optoms in Scotland are IP. Is it that sort of number? I can't quite remember the numbers, but something like that. It was ten percent a few years ago. I think it's something like thirty percent now. So, you know. That's absolutely brilliant. 30% of optometrists are IP. Obviously, it should be 100%. We need to work towards that, and it should be part of the degree. I think it's ridiculous. You have to wait a couple of years, forget everything you learned at uni, and then do it again. I think it's a total nonsense. But nonetheless, we're, you know, we're moving in the right direction there. We've got funding for education through NEST, the NHS body, the integration with optometry and medicine and the NHS is far, far better up here. We're like a genuine part of the NHS up here. Um, which is great because it gives us access to stuff, access to computer systems, referral systems, care pathway, shared care. All that is possible because they don't they don't just ignore us. We used to just be this kind of like weird allied health professionals that no one really thought about. But now we're a real part of eye care in Scotland. Optometry is a real cornerstone. So we're talked about in the same breath as dentists, doctors, physios, pharmacists, as we should be as kind of proper primary care clinicians, so GPs, whatever. So um, all that is because of the contract, ultimately. Um, and these are all huge positives. So um, great for patients and great for your clinical practice here in Scotland, too. That sounds all really positive. Are there any negatives to the to the differences in the GOS contracts? Oh, good question. Good question. Are there negatives? I, was, yeah, I suppose one... one <laughs> One is that it's it's more difficult to differentiate yourself as a, an excellent provider of eye care if the basic standard of eye care is pretty good. Like if you go to the, like if you look at the basic level of eye care in England, the most basic level of eye exam that you can get away with in England, it's not great. Direct ophthalmoscopy, not really dilating people, not really having to use a slit lamp. I mean, that's not really very good. But but that's good if you have a, a higher level of practice because you can say, well, look at this eye exam over here. It's terrible. Look what I'm offering. It's fantastic. Actually, the gap between what I'm offering or I used to offer and the kind of basic level that you can get everywhere else is much closer now. So I have to work twice as hard to differentiate myself as a kind of leading practitioner or whatever or, or differentiate my business as a... As a, as a as a better level of eye care. That's hard work to do, and it's hard it's harder work to do that in Scotland, I guess, so that's tricky. I, I think probably then the other thing would be, you know, try as we might to, uh, you know, we all want to develop clinical services, make the most of clinical services, right? But even in a practice like mine, which is very clinical focused, and we charge high fees and all those kind of things, we still need to sell glasses to make ends meet. We're not We're not charging enough for an eye exam. I mean, realistically, we should be charging what lawyers charge for eye exams, you know, two, three, four hundred quid an hour is what we should be charging for our time if you're, if you're not selling any products. And that's why when you go to a lawyer, they'll charge you four or five hundred quid for an hour of their time because they can't sell you a product as well. They just sell you their time. So that's the sort of money that we should be doing for eye exams. But no one, no one's charging five hundred pounds for eye exams or if they are. I need to I need to hear from them and work out how they're doing it, um, but you know that's that's just not possible. So even with the clinical services and the level of payment, which is much better up here, we still need to do retail and we still need to do that well and we still need to you know make money from selling glasses and contact lenses and products. So um, that's uh, that can be more difficult in this environment because 
more of your time is taken up doing clinical stuff because you've got, um, you're doing kind of acute stuff for GPs, you maybe you're involved in shared care stuff, maybe we're doing this content lens stuff for the hospital, maybe we're doing some other stuff that we find interesting and it is exciting, but from a business point of view, that is, you've got to keep that in balance as well because it can just chew you up and you could spend all your time doing acute work uh, and, and that not really paying the bills. I'm thinking about the retail side of it and, and, and products and I'm about to define my age in the way I ask this question. Yes, we provide very focals. Don't worry about it, Ian. I can sort you out. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the frames you wear are always uh, quite trendy. Um, is that does someone does someone style you, or do you have a real interest in that fashion side? And what you stock in the practice, are you actively involved in in, in deciding. The, the look and feel of those frame ranges and the decor, you know, your practice looks really swanky when when I've looked at your website. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the way we differentiate our practice is we differentiate on the kind of the way it looks on the inside and then the frames we, we provide and then the services that we provide. So everything we're trying to differentiate ourselves from other people, not just in our services, but in our style and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, in terms of frames, yeah, I mean, I take an active interest in that. We do have a, a head of buying who sort of is really in charge of that, but that is very much under my direction in the sense that I meet with her every week and we're talking about what, what ranges we're stocking and what's going to work well in the practice and what's not going to work well. And we made a big pivot towards that kind of stuff. That was 2016. We made a big pivot towards niche brands luxury brands not designer brands so nothing really nothing we have in the practice has any branding on the side of it at all um, nothing is any kind of name that you would see on the high street anywhere it's no like Ray-Ban stuff like that or you know Tom Ford Diesel these things we don't really have any of that stuff so we try again just different and not that that stuff's bad or whatever it's just that that's a way we differentiate ourselves like if you don't want that sort of stuff then we're the kind of place that has the stuff that you might like so what was the question was that is that answering the question I think that's that's answered the question you want some trendy glasses is that what you want Ian I'll send you some trendy glasses super <laughs> and then and then just when I was looking on your, your website earlier I noticed um just having a browse around and your opening hours are Monday to Friday and you know that's obviously a deliberate decision to to close on on a Saturday is that just to to give both yourself and and the staff just a better work-life balance that's the way it's always been yeah um, ultimately yeah, a bit of both but you know patients occasionally ask me like oh why are you not open on a Saturday and I'm like the same reason you don't want to work on a Saturday you don't want to work who wants to work on a Saturday nobody I mean, obviously, most people have to, and fine, but if you have the option not to, then don't. I think we, we keep toying around with it, and I'm like, oh, we probably should, because, you know, it makes a lot of sense financially, it makes a lot of sense. But I sort of, then I think, well, I haven't really optimised five days a week, and until I feel like I've actually done everything I can do in five, I don't need to worry about six. Uh, and I've still not done everything I can do in five. There's a lot more I could do to optimise our, our offering at the moment, make it more efficient, make it better. Um, uh, and then once I feel like I've done that, then I guess I will have to open on Saturday. But I, I keep talking about it, but I, I don't want to do it. I want to go to my kids' football. I want to relax. Other staff love it. You know, we it's a great recruiting tool. A lot of people come from other places because they're like, I hate working weekends. I want to work in a different environment. And this is a, you know, it's a big draw for people. So because we're quite big now, we do have to recruit quite often because the bigger you get, the more you have to recruit. And so we do need to be attractive to people. Um, 
Uh, and that's one of the ways as well as paying well and being like a nice employer, which I feel like we are. But another way is that you know, there's no weekends and that's like quite a big deal for optometry and front of house staff. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. basically I don't want to work Saturdays. So <laughs> that's why it never happens. Can we go on to your recent business changes? Um, you were a pretty high profile addition to the Hakim group in the in the last few months. Um, can you tell us a bit about what uh, nudged your decision that way? Yeah, I think there's a range of there's a range of benefits to my practice personally, uh, uh, and then I think there's a range of benefits to practices generally of joining that sort of group. So this we talked a wee bit about that idea of consolidation, and I think one of the benefits of the Hakim Group is the ability to 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 consolidate and yet retain your independent identity, and that's been important to me. Obviously, it does change. It's not the same as when I was outside of the group, but it does let me retain the values and ethos and the practice in and doing things the way I like to do things, but get the benefits of being part of a big group in terms of supplier pricing, cost efficiencies, back office efficiencies, and they're really important to a practice of my size because we're big and our costs are big now and any savings we can make there are really huge and we need to look for savings a competitive industry in a competitive time so we need to find ways of 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 saving money and working more efficiently and and i think we had got to the stage where i felt i had done everything i could do like my costs were as low as i could get them and i I couldn't get them any lower but they were still too high so you know where do you go there and being part of a group is uh, a a chance there and then i think there's an advantage for us um, in terms of what we can bring to a group like that. So, um, you know, we do things quite differently here. We've got a lot of learning, got a lot of experience doing different types of services and doing things in a different way. And I think we can potentially have a, a big influence in a group like that, demonstrating other models of optometry. It doesn't always have to be just flogging glasses and, and it doesn't have to be boring. And it can be a career that is... Um, varied and interesting it can be a business that is profitable but doesn't have to open on Saturdays you know there's other ways of doing things and I guess we want to showcase that here's another way you could do optometry and 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 I think the group gives us the chance to show that and and take that learning into other other practices and say look look at how these guys do it let's try and do that and I think that would be good for optometry in general so I want our practice to have a, a positive influence on the optometry landscape and I think I can do that better as part of a group than I can on my own. My influence is now much larger, I think, part of the group than it was before. And I think that's important as I get to the sort of midpoint in my career. So that's some of the reasons I thought I thought it was a good a good move for us. And it's been good so far. Been really good so far. Ian, just moving away from, from the practice just for a moment. If you've been involved in expert witness work, I believe, in, in the past. And it, it's something that I, I know yeah. very little about. Um, What's it like? I absolutely love that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. It's a really, I kind of entered it a bit a bit by accident, really. I think my dad used to do it very occasionally. So now and again, lawyers would write and say, oh, look, we need an expert witness. And I thought, oh, that sounded quite fun. This is back Halcyon days, back in Halcyon days, 2000 to 2005, uh, 2005 to 2010. Had nothing better to do with my time. Young guy, no commitments, brilliant. Uh, so, I, you know, I was working all the hours that I could get on whatever I wanted. Um, uh, and so this thing came along, I was like, that sounds like quite good fun, maybe I'll have a punt at that. So I kind of did it and, and just found it a really engaging process and uh, since then have really enjoyed it uh, and it's been fantastic for my clinical development. I think it's one of the best things I do in terms of 
my personal clinical development is doing this expert witness work. So um, it's really, really interesting. It's hard, uh, but the again, it's variety. It's something different. I don't do loads of it. Um, it's not what I do all the time, and I think that would get stale, but I do it now and again, and it's really interesting, and it's really hard. So I find it really taxing, which I think is also good for me. Living inside my comfort zone uh, all the time is not great. So I need to make sure that I'm stretching myself and that's one of the ways I stretch myself. So uh, I find that quite, I find it a lot of fun. Fun, maybe not quite the right word. I find it engaging and I think it's important and I think it's important that it's done well and I think I can do it well. So that, that all sort of comes together. Like, you know, I, I do feel the burden when someone is at the sharp end of a, a clinical negligence claim. I can imagine what that's like. I, I know what it's like to miss stuff. Uh, and to, yeah, I know what it's like to be in that position and I know what it's like to be in practice and be rushed and not have time and be tired and be feeling under the weather and just not do a great job and yet then, then still having the responsibility to look after a patient properly and worrying about making mistakes. I know what all that feels like and so I like to provide a kind of sensible, balanced judgment on that because I know what it's like to be to be an optometrist and I think I can do a fair job of saying well that you know that really should have been spotted or no I think that's okay okay it wasn't brilliant practice but like I can imagine that happening and I think getting that balance is quite important um, and I feel like I'm quite good at that now because I've done quite a lot of it um, so I quite like taking on that responsibility because I think I can do a fair job here and I can give this optometrist a fair hearing and you know if they've made a mistake I'm going to call them out but if they haven't made a mistake, I'm going to go to the help for them. And um, I quite like that. I find that engaging and important. What does it actually involve? I mean, I'm watching too many lawyer dramas at the moment. Are you on the stand being cross-examined or are you sat <laughs> with a bundle of paperwork late at night? Yeah, it's, it's the latter 99.9% .9 of the time. So basically, the usual pattern is you get sent a, a, a bunch of records and a, an outline of a case. So the lawyer says, look, this person ended up having a retinal detachment and they were seen by the optometrist three days before. The optometrist said that everything was fine and said they had cataract and sent them away. It turned out then they had a retinal detachment and now they've gone blind. So the question is, should the optometrist have spotted that this person had a retinal detachment or not? And you get the case records and you have to look through uh, and try and work out what happened and then work out, well, that's what happened. And then, then did the optometrist act appropriately or not? Did they act in a way that was reasonable given the situation? Or, you know, so in that kind of scenario, did the patient come in complaining of flashing lights and floaters and the, the optometrist just didn't dilate them and didn't bother having a look? Then, you know, that's more difficult to defend, isn't it? But if the optometrist dilated them, had a good look, said there was no tobacco dust, looked with a Vogue lens and didn't find a, a rental attachment, then is that is that good enough? And the answer in that case would be, yes, it is good enough. So, you know, that's the sort of thing. And you've got to make the, the judgment on whether the optometrist has done enough to be what's defined as reasonably competent. Have they acted with reasonable competence in this situation? They don't have to, they don't have to be the best optometrist in the world. They don't have to be gold standard. They don't have to be amazing. They don't have to do everything right, but they do have to act reasonably competent uh, and finding that balance point is what's really interesting and difficult and challenging but that's what makes the work enjoyable so uh, you do that 99.9% of the time 0.001% of the time these cases get all the way to court more often than not they're settled one way or the other so either the the claimant gives up or the defense um, uh, 
you know, pay up, if you like, um, or settle, I think is the correct term, sorry. Um, but occasionally they end up in court and yeah, you would have to give your evidence. So I've written a report and then I would get questioned about my report and the lawyer would say, so you've wrote, written this, what about this? And how? And you'd have to answer questions on that in court. Not as exciting as it looks in the dramas at all. But good fun and really good for my clinical practice because it makes me think about my own practice. Whenever I read this, I'm like, oh, I must make sure I... I do that thing there that this person forgot to do because I make that mistake all the time myself. And, and so it's been really good for my practice in terms of personally and then in terms of the systems and processes that we have in place. A lot of the systems and processes have come from uh, the uh, come from that work and you know learning from frankly others' mistakes or others' missteps. Um, so which is you know slightly unfortunate that that's the way you learn, but that is the way you learn. So I learn from my own mistakes, but I also learn from observing other people's. So. I'm convinced we we could just chat forever, but um, I'm conscious that we do need to wrap things up. Um, but just just maybe a closing thought. What do you think optometry will look like, say, in a decade decade's time? You know, what do you think we'll we'll be doing as optometrists? Oh, I, I hesitate to make predictions because all the predictions I've made previously have been wrong. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it's difficult to predict, isn't it? Because things happen that you can't predict, like COVID or whatever, and that completely changes the dynamic in a way that I certainly didn't foresee. So um, I think there may come a divergence between people doing more clinical work and people doing more retail work. It feels that it's difficult to hold those two in tension um, very successfully, and it may be that you move toward a more sort of purely clinical role but the fee structure for that isn't there at the moment so I don't know how that would work really it's very difficult to make that financially viable as it stands um, unless you work inside a hospital you know that's the sort of closest equivalent um, it's hard to see what that looks like in community but there are models out there so my wife is a what's called a clinical pharmacist where the the clinical team the pharmacy team pay for her to work inside a GP doing pharmacy, clinical pharmacy work inside a GP's practice. So you could imagine potentially some body, primary care body, employing an optometrist to work in a GP doing purely clinical work using that sort of clinical pharmacy model. I can see that. I can imagine that. There's a lot of road bumps, but I could imagine that happening. So maybe you'll see optometrists working in clinical settings like GP or multidisciplinary practices. And in fact, there are already, already some people doing that sort of thing, maybe on a more sessional basis, but maybe that's an increasing model. Um, so sort of, if you like, the clinical pharmacy model. What else? I mean, I suppose there's just going to be the inevitable continual creep of optometry upwards. You know, we need to keep taking new skills and keep taking new grinds. So I did some training in minor surgery. I did some training in laser um, laser procedures like YAG and SLT. And yeah, optometrists are doing these in hospital, which is fine, but you want to be doing these in practice. Like, I want to be doing SLT on my patients in practice, not because some consultants told me to do it, but because I think that's what this patient needs. And I want to make the decision and I want to treat the patient just like like we did with IP. Instead of saying, you've got a red eye, you need to go to the GP to get that treated. We said, no, no, we can do this. Like I can make the decision and I can treat it. And that should be like that with glaucoma, should be like that with YAG, should be like that with probably a range of other things and maybe some retinal work, simple retinopexy stuff could be could easily be done in community. I don't see why not. I'd like to think that in my professional lifetime, there's optometrists doing simple cataract surgery. I don't think that's beyond us in terms of the technical ability of our, us to use our hands. It's no harder than I'm saying this from ignorance. I don't know, but I have done a minor, I have done a surgery, basic surgical training with, um, with doctors 
and I got on okay and I'm not surgically trained so you know there's microsurgical courses that I know some, some optometrists have been on and done and do absolutely fine so you know you can learn these techniques and I don't see why that should be impossible to imagine given the way cataract lists are at the moment so um, stuff like that I don't know I'd like to think that I think back to when my dad when he you're talking like when you qualified Ian but when my dad qualified he couldn't even tell a patient that they had a cataract weren't even allowed to use the word couldn't even make the diagnosis and when he retired he did his IP right before he retired good effort and like the day before he retired basically was writing a prescription to deal with anterior uveitis for steroids and like he was remarking on that thinking that is an unbelievable change like if you'd gone back to when he was when he was qualifying to say that's what you'll be doing when you retire folk would have laughed him out of court so just as probably folk listening to this are laughing at me saying we might be doing cataract surgery I don't think it's any more outrageous than it was to say that we'd be writing scripts for steroids 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, 20 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised to see it. I'd hope that. I, I quite fancy the chance to do it myself. So I'm going to be pushing for that if there's an opportunity. But uh, we'll see. Ian, I think that's a brilliant place um, to end. It's It's been really fascinating and in inspiring chatting to you so so thank you so much for your time grant oh thanks for having me it's always uh, always nice to to chat and hope hopefully it's been useful i mean it's i don't want to just talk about myself all the time but hopefully it does inspire people and encourages people to keep moving forward in the career that's what we want that's what we need we need everybody to be doing that in optometry to drive the profession forward so go for it